when I found out that I had a daughter, which was the day she was born, my mother handed me a book called Reviving Ophelia. And I read the book and I was horrified. And it really opened my eyes to something I had no clue was was going on. At the time when my daughter was born, I wasn't really into TV. I just, I controlled all the movies that, that I watched. And when I read Reviving Ophelia, walking down the street became an experience where I saw the inundation of negative image on girls or a particular body image. And it just had not been in my spectrum before. It had not been in my field. And the older my daughter got, the more aware I became of it, especially when we went shoe shopping. She wanted nothing to do with the girl's shoes. And when we would walk down the aisle of these certain department stores, she would say, I don't want these. I want the boy's shoes. And I said, why? And she says, because I can run faster in them. And I was very okay with it. I was very much okay with the toys that she played with. She did receive Barbie dolls as gifts, promptly cut all their hair, drew punk makeup on them. Her nickname today, to this day, still is punk. Uh, my daughter is now 22 years old at the time of this recording. But I also remember the day that I really screwed up. And I believe that the seed of body imagery had already been planted just because she was a girl and she watched movies and TV. And I remember the day, like it was yesterday, that I poured fertilizer all over that seed of body image issues. We were on a hike and she was struggling and she was whining and she was bitching and complaining and moaning. And she says, dad, I'm injured. I'm injured. I'm injured. My legs hurt. My legs hurt. And I looked at her and I was very frustrated. And she's about 13 years old. And I said, you're not injured. You're out of shape. And a look came across her face. I blew it. I really blew it in that moment. And I watched it manifest and I didn't know what to say. And I didn't know how to make her understand how beautiful I thought she was. And I did. I screwed up. When she got a little bit older and these things, and I watched her go through these struggles and I watched her speak to them and give words to them. Through some friends, she met a woman named Carmen Cool, and she's my guest today. And at the time, Carmen ran a group for boys and girls in Boulder called the Boulder Youth Body Alliance. And my daughter joined and it changed her life. Today's episode is called Eating Me From The Inside. And my guest today is therapist Carmen Cool. I am a teacher, teen and parent coach, internationally known trainer. I own and run a residential treatment center for teens. And best of all, I am a happy father, stepfather, and husband. Welcome to another episode of Beyond Risk and Back, brought to you by Mental Health News Radio and Fire Mountain Residential Treatment Center. I am your host, Aaron Huey. Beyond Risk and Back is designed for parents, clinicians, and teachers looking for support to guide the teens they care for to move forward from risky behaviors into real freedom and responsibility. Now, let's help each other get these kids back from Beyond Risk. Okay, Carmen, welcome to the show. It took me a second to gather myself there. Thank you so much for joining me. And I hope in my intro, I was able to communicate just how much I'm in love with you and in love with your work and what you've done for my daughter and for so many kids in Boulder and all over. Thank you so much for being here. I feel so blessed to be able to talk to you on this podcast. Oh, it is such an honor to be here, Aaron. Thank you so much for inviting me. So Beyond Risk and Back, Carmen, is for teachers and parents and clinicians. These are people you and I both work with constantly. We both teach them constantly. And it is for these people to work 
with kids who are struggling with body image. And I want to make sure I'm using the right term. And when I talk about you being an expert in, what is it that you bring to the table with the expertise to work with these boys and girls and what's going on in their bodies? I have a hard time calling myself an expert in anything, actually. But I think that my expertise is around this whole spectrum of weight stigma, disordered eating, eating disorders, diet culture, youth development, all those topics. And it comes, you know, partly from my own experience of with myself and with my family and caring very much about uh, giving, letting people know there's an alternative and a, and a pathway to healing out of this kind of toxic cultural stuff that we're all swimming in all the time. My daughter would sincerely disagree with you when you talk about having trouble calling yourself an expert. And I believe her life still stands as a, uh, a testimonial to the work that you do. I'm happy to say that when my daughter met you and when she worked with you, she wasn't really deep into it. Um, mm-hmm as far as you know, having medical issues. And as a person who runs a clinic for teenagers, a residential treatment center, we have a very clear line on the kids that we will work with when it comes to uh, body image and eating disorders and disorder eating. We, when it comes to eating disorders, we draw the line. And for us, that tends to mean that medical intervention is also necessary, that, that the negative eating habits and conditioned behaviors are now impacting at such a level that they're physically suffering to a point that we feel they need constant medical attention. So when we talk about disordered eating and eating disorders, is that a good distinction that there's a line where medical intervention is necessary? Is that fair? I think it's complicated because I think sometimes there's a very thin line, right? And there's a spectrum that I think most of us would fall on somewhere in there and it can cross over the line and back again. But I do think to your point that there is a level where someone's health and life can be in danger. Sure. But I think I want to be careful about that doesn't mean that if someone is not at that place that they're not um, also deeply suffering in their relationship with food and body. So I think that's incredibly accurate that that even without medical complications that are arising, that doesn't mean the emotional complications aren't there. And I, you're absolutely right about that. And that is where at Fire Mountain, we can really help kids. It's that that constant medical intervention piece that it doesn't scare us away. It's just I don't have capacity for that with the work that we sure. do. Exactly. Now you get kids in at all levels. You get kids in who've got who are struggling with diets and their parents are starting to get concerned. You've got kids who are dealing with, you know, uh, severe medical uh, uh, problems. You've got kids that are struggling with body image issues. Is that correct? That's correct. What seems yep. to be the most common? Who? Um, I think the most common is, oh, it's interesting. Um, I would say disordered eating is more common than the clinically diagnosed eating disorders. But I think what's the most common is just kids who are, um, oh gosh, how do I want to say this, kind of at war with their own bodies or kids who are worried about um, fitting in, you know, kind of engaged in the project of perfecting their bodies as a way to find a sense of belonging. Um, kids who are really indoctrinated into this diet culture frame of of being and thinking and not knowing how to find a way out of that. 
So let's talk does about that make sense? yes, it absolutely does. So let's talk about this disordered eating. And so so parents because okay. I think everybody has heard eating disorders, uh, bulimia, sure. anorexia, and and there's kind of a common understanding, which may or may not be accurate about what those are. But disordered eating mm-hmm. is a relatively newer term. So for parents and teachers, what does disordered eating actually mean? Go back one second, and I'll, I'll want to name binge eating disorder as the other eating disorder, along with anorexia and nervosa. Thank you. Of course. And disordered eating, in my mind, includes dieting, actually, includes any kind of relationship with food that doesn't feel free and easy and peaceful, right? So it can include, I'm not going to, I'm going to skip lunch as a way to either save calories or as a way to have a bigger dinner. I'm going to exercise as a way to make up for food that I ate the day before. It can include just this fear around food, around carbs in particular currently, right? Just this relationship with food that's kind of fraught with fear and control. I think what else I might add to that? So I have a question about that. I like I like this that, because when we talk about fear and control and we go back to the simplicity of if we're going to exercise because we ate a big meal or we're going to skip mm-hmm. a meal because we, you know, that the the compensatory behaviors. I did this, so I have to do that versus doing something because it feels good. And right. I know I know, I can speak for myself very, very accurately and a lot of listeners out there who can say to you, I have tried everything. Part of it is because every doctor I talk to has something different to tell me. This one mm-hmm. says I'm overweight. This one says I'm just a big guy. This one says I have high cholesterol. This one says high cholesterol is actually not the problem. It's the sugar intake and then my high cholesterol is fine. And it is a constant barrage just yes. the medical world. And then yes. I sit down to watch TV and I see Fight Club and I look at Brad Pitt's body and I go, damn, he looks so good doing that. And then I find myself doing too many push-ups. And I am finally have gotten to the age after my last failed, it's, it wasn't failed. It felt great. I didn't want to do it anymore. So I stopped. I was doing intermittent fasting and I felt some really remarkable changes around food and some awareness around food. So I'll talk about that in a minute. But I was done with the controls. I was done with feeling like I had to stress out after every meal. Eating and stress couldn't be good. And then I would compensate. And it was the compensation piece that was the red alert for me consistently. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you're including a lot of things into something that parents are told is really, really serious. And you know, bulimia, anorexia, nervosa, binge eating, there's a whole nother level to this disordered eating. This is, it feels like anything I do that isn't just, I think you use the word free and happy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like how, how simple is that? And it's also so complicated, right? This idea that I can be in a relationship with my body. I can be my body's partner and I can see how does it, how does it want to be fed today? What do I need? What would actually nourish me deeply on all levels? And do I have um, freedom to have that, right? Can I, can I notice when I'm hungry? Can I notice what it is I'm hungry for? Can I stop when I'm, when I reach the point of satisfaction? Do I allow myself to have pleasure and satisfaction in my food and then go on with my day? So if I don't, do I have a problem? If I'm not free and happy at every meal, do I have a problem? (laughs) Well, free and happy. Yeah. I don't know that 
I don't want to make that another level of things that we have to achieve, right? Like I said, then that kind of gets, it's a whole other thing that of, am I, am I doing freedom right? You know, it's not about Man. that. And it can turn into that, right? But I, you know, I don't want to say that if someone doesn't have an easy relationship with food, that there's a problem because it, to me, the culture is the one with the problem. I think if we focus too much on kind of our individual relationships with food and body, that we can feel like we're broken and we're not the ones broken. I think the culture is the one that's broken or the thing that's broken. So I, I think I want to be careful about not pathologizing having a disordered relationship with food. It's more like, is it in my way? Is it in the way of me living a free and happy life? Does it work for me? Or am I following external rules and leaving myself out of the process altogether? Am I in partnership with my own wisdom? And how can I, how can I reorient myself back towards that? So the problem with the creating kind of an abstract, this is about your feeling thing, is twofold, as I see it. Number one, people are not naturally, okay, maybe they are, but it's it's not conditioned into us or it's conditioned out of us. We're not naturally emotionally intelligent. So we still have trouble identifying actual feeling words. Mm-hmm. I feel like you're lying to me is not a feeling. I feel anxious is. I feel hungry is. And one is an emotional experience and one is a physical experience. So people really to experience true freedom and true happiness with food and body and all that type of stuff, number one, they really have to be in touch with their feelings and that's not trained. And number two, when we're as a parent, as a teacher, as a clinician, how do we begin to have limbic resonance? And for the layman, that means how are we empathic with our kids to know that they're actually struggling with this? How do It's too much of an abstract. I think pathologizing it creates a black and white that I could say, oh, my kid just crossed over the eating line and now uh-huh. there's a problem. So what's advice for parents who are going, does my kid have a problem with food? What's going on here? That was a big question. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think if we want to simplify that, that question of does my kid have a problem with food? I want to start by, I think there's a a place where just, it's just noticing and the non-judgmental noticing becomes important and staying curious and open around how are they in relationship with food? And what do I consider normal? Like asking ourselves, like we think dieting is normal. It's become normalized in this culture. To me, that's not a normal relationship with food. It doesn't necessarily mean there's a problem and that a professional might need to get involved, but it's kind of like, is there joy around eating? Is there is there an ease with food? Is there fear around food? Is the person, is the young person really worried about trying to control and manipulate their body? Um, is their self-worth and sense of value attached to what they look like, right? And then does that manifest in the ways that they approach food or a meal? And then there's the more obvious signs, like, are they restricting food? Are they going to the bathroom after meals? You know, those are kind of the classic eating disorder signs. But it's looking at where's their sense of self coming from? How are they relating to food? That's good. I think now we're on to something that that can fuel a parent because we're saying, you know, going to the bathroom after food, are they skipping meals or withholding, you know, again, compensating? Well, you know, proms in a week, I'm not going to eat this week, things like that. So let's talk about some of those things. So so now I'm a parent 
and I got a kid and I've, and I've got the gut, you know, my gut is saying, Hey man, you're going to watch this. There's something going on with him. Like there's something going on. I don't know what it is. And I know it's around this food thing, but there's something going on. Like he's always doing his crunches and stuff like that. And he was being healthy and now I'm feeling something different. So what are some of these physical things I'm looking for? For example, if I want to prove my gut feeling, if I want to see am I right, how do I start? Is it how many selfies they're taking? Is it the kind of pictures they're putting on their wall? Like what is going to give me the clues that there's there's more going on than my gut feeling and what I think they're doing with food? Ah, uh, talking to your young person, talking to your child. Boy, there's that Actually, communication thing again. It, it seems to rear its head on every single thing that has to do with emotions. <laughs> I know. I think it's more that than trying to look for, okay, there's these things that I'm seeing, therefore it means this. Like it's more, I mean, crunches can be a healthy activity or it could be a problematic activity. Depends on how we approach it, right? That idea that anything can be medicine or poison depending on how we're using it. So I think it's really having a conversation with your kid and finding out what's going on and finding out what they're feeling, if they can communicate that and finding out what it is that they're wanting and what it is that they're after and what they're afraid of, right? It's just having having a conversation. So what are some of the verbal cues that you've heard clients give that give you that insight, that red flag when they do talk about? So so I got my teenager finally talking with me and I said, hey man, you're doing a lot of crunches. What's going on there? What's the answer I get that I go, oh crap, versus the, okay, that's, that's still medicine. Um, this is such a spectrum. I can feel the way that we're wanting to kind of nail down something super specific. And I think it's not that easy to do. So I want to say that. But I think some clues might be, and it's funny, because I don't know that somebody would say this this directly right away. Um, but maybe something towards any sense of I feel like I need to perfect my body, and that will perfect my life, you know, to me would be, again, I don't know that anybody would use those words, um, a young person would use those words directly, but anything that kind of gives the clue of I'm only okay, if I look this certain way. So, or so I'm only I get that, Carmen. I get that. And what I want to say is the way we talk about that to the parents, we call it the if then. Mm -hmm. If mm -hmm. I do this, then that will be better. If only, yeah. and that's, you know, with the body image stuff, it's more internalized. Whereas so many of the other difficulties we have is oh, if only my parents would do something different, if only my child would do something different. But this is if only I looked, if only, if only my abs, if only my biceps, if only my butt, if only my legs. Mm -hmm. Then I would be happy. Then I would get a boyfriend. Then I would, my friends would like me better. Then I would be more popular. And yeah. if you're right, kids aren't going to talk that directly. And I think this is what I wanted parents to hear, which is why I've been asking questions like this. With addiction, with disorders like this, I know every single parent comes to me and says they're making bad choices. They need to make good ones. Like it's just not that simple. Well, how do I know when they're making bad choices? How do I know when it's a bad thing? How do I know when it's an okay thing? How do I know when my kid is smoking pot like a teenager and smoking pot like an addict? What's the line? And there's no line. It's about the kid. And that's a hard right. one. Exactly. So I don't mm -hmm. believe I'm asking you these questions because I know this is what parents are asking and what I want parents and teachers and clinicians to hear what Carmen is saying, this one is not a simple one. None of them are. Mm -hmm. And if you don't get to the person, you're going to keep dealing with the food, which quite frankly is going to put more energy into the food spectrum. It's also not simple because our current culture is a diet culture that we're in. So it supports a disordered relationship with food and we call that normal, right? So there's a way that I want to suggest or invite 
all of us as adults, right, with young people in our lives, to just look at what is our own relationship with our food and our body, and what are we modeling? And do we have those beliefs that our lives would be better if we were 10 pounds thinner, or whatever it is that we have in our mind, right? And really kind of doing the work of what are my beliefs around my body? What are my beliefs around what health looks like? What are my beliefs around how bodies need to be? You know, it's kind of going back to what you were saying before. There's so much that's up right now in this conversation, but you were talking about all of the information we get from the medical field, from television. And it's so complicated because it can also be so contradictory, right? Depending on who we're talking to. And so really what I feel like if we widen the lens here, my biggest goal is to help everyone be their own authority on their body and what it needs and what it needs to work best. And so really, how do we help everybody kind of tune into and listen to their own internal wisdom about what their body needs and what their life needs? I love what you just said, because I I have a perfect example of that. Uh, Many years back, I was into Men's Health, the magazine, Men's Health Journal and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And I had five months in a row where I had opposing articles about coffee, where (laughs) this one saying coffee's good for you, the next one saying don't drink coffee, this one saying coffee before a workout, this one saying coffee's bad for your heart, this one saying coffee after a workout. And on the fifth one, I just said, forget it. I'm not (laughs) doing this thing about coffee. And now there's bulletproof coffee and all this type of stuff. And I I just, you don't know who to believe. And that that gets really frustrating. So now I- Believe your body. Okay. I No, no, that's it. Because now you're saying, believe your body. How do I do that? Exactly what I'm saying. How do I begin? How do I, what, how do I start that? How do you begin improving any relationship? It's kind of listening, right? Mm -hmm. Like there's this, when I think about people that want to develop more trust in their body and improve their relationship with their body and be able to hear the signals that our bodies are given, it's kind of like, how do you do that with any relationship? You know, it's like, learning how to listen, learning how to, like, how do we build trust back up, right? Our bodies are used to us overriding them, not believing them. So I think it's a process of turning back towards a noticing without judgment, which is sometimes the hardest part, right? But a real noticing, okay, if I have coffee, what happens in my body? Like, not what do I think happens, not what I'm told happens. What happens? How does it feel? Do I like that feeling? And go from there. And it might take some time to learn how to listen because so much of us or so many of us have also been taught and have experiences where we've learned to tune out the signals that our body gives altogether, right? We have to work through pain. We have to ignore when we're hungry. We're taught to not pay attention. So it's a gentle process of coming back into relationship with our bodies and just noticing if I eat this, if I drink this, how does it feel? What do I notice about it? Yeah. How do you teach your kids? How to do that? Asking those questions, right? Helping them learn how to ask those questions, right? Trusting them to know the wisdom of their body also, right? So when you eat this meal, what do you notice an hour later? What's it feel like? How do you know when you're hungry? Not like, how do you know, like, I don't believe you, but what are the cues your body gives you to let you know that you're hungry? What does fullness feel like? What does satisfaction feel like? What does increased energy feel like? What gives you those feelings? What happens when you eat past full? What does that feel like? Is it a good feeling, a neutral feeling, a uncomfortable feeling? You know, those kinds of questions. What do you do as a parent when you see your kid do something like hold their ears back because they don't like their big ears or talk about one day, <laughs> could they get a nose job or even says mm-hmm. something like, I hate my body? Mm-hmm. Those are so hard and so painful, right? Because 
I'll tell a story. I, I tell this one kind of often, but the first memory that I have of, of not liking my body was when I was 10 years old. And it was that moment kind of after the Thanksgiving dinner when all of the adults were hanging out in the kitchen. And, you know, my mom and my grandmother and my cousins and, you know, my aunts, everyone was in the kitchen. And it was the first year we had the electric carving knife, which I thought was the coolest thing ever for some reason, because <laughs> I loved how, how just easy it was to plug it in and turn it on. And it just like effortlessly sliced through the turkey. And I remember looking down at my belly and I grabbed it into my hands and I said, I wish we could slice this off the way we just sliced through the turkey. Wow. And when I think back, right, I think, well, there was a moment for an intervention. If someone had really heard me, I was starting to express feelings about myself that I wasn't even necessarily aware I was having yet. But what I heard back was everybody joining in with some version of, yeah, me too. Yeah, that would be awesome, oh. right? Like, I wish I could do that to my arms. I use that example to show that that's what I mean when I say we're all in this. I kind of we're all in this system that teaches us that our bodies aren't okay as they are. And also to say, like, that was a moment where someone could have taken me aside and said, what's what's wrong with your belly? I think your belly's great just the way it is. Where do those feelings come from? You know, how is it that and how is it that we're modeling those to our kids, too? I'm not saying that to kind of bring up any blame by any by any means, because this message is coming at us from everywhere, all angles, all the time that our bodies need to be changed and perfected in, a, in order for us to be worthy or to be loved or valuable. But just kind of noticing those things that we might not even hear because we're in that same mindset. Do you know what I mean? I do. And man, you're talking about that. I remember seeing a picture of my biological father on the front of a program for a play he was in. And, um, and his nose looked huge. And I mm -hmm. wondered if I was going to inherit my biological father's huge nose. And it yeah, mm -hmm. I thought about that. And, and my nose became a focal point as a teenager. And it's interesting. And it's interesting how deeply rooted it is just looking at it. And look, thinking also. about the picture now, I know it was just bad lighting. Like he had a shadow across his nose, made it look massive. And his nose wasn't like that. I have a much more accurate picture. It was a very normal nose. Yeah. But look at what, what we just did there. Right. What if it wasn't? just a shadow? What if he did have a big nose? And where's the law that says that all of our noses have to be a certain way? Like, wh why is it that we can't, this is a rhetorical question, but kind of not, right? Like, why I'm is not. it that we can't just allow bodies to be diverse? And, and, it's, and boys have it. And I, I don't know, and I would hate to open this can of worms that boys have it less than girls or girls have it more than boys or, or whatever, but growing up with He-Man dolls, I mean, that literally his name is <laughs> he Man, like this uh, is, and the James Bond right. syndrome that you got to be able to handle your alcohol and handle your women and handle your cars and handle your guns and handle your violence and handle your conflicts and handle your governments. That one man mm -hmm. can handle all this and needs no one and needs nothing. And that, you know, that you got to be fit. You got to be this certain type of person who can do that. And it, yeah. it, it extends from the body into the psyche. Sure. Yeah, you're talking about masculinity, right? And the ways we're socialized into masculinity and toxic masculinity. And, you know, also, I want to just pause and say this isn't just a girl, like, just to kind of get out of the binary around this, that people who are gender nonconforming or trans also have huge, sometimes dysphoria around bodies and eating disorders and body image. And it gets really complicated. So I just want to say, you know, all of us have some, I think, what do I want to say about this? Whenever there's a, a norm that's held up, kind of as the thing that we need to be, then suffering is created in all the different ways we try to reach that. When we work with kids who are gender neutral in transition, 
One of the things, I see two things. Number one, I'm really, I'm curious around your understanding of this. Some of the kids that I've worked with who are in transition or orienting towards gender neutral or, or moving from one to another, either mentally or even physically, they seem to have embraced the struggle at a level that I think um, kids who are still being held to norms, either by themselves or by their families, are still dealing with on a daily basis. Is that accurate? Or do you think that people who are moving through gender are struggling with it more? I don't know that I can answer that, actually, in any kind of clear way. I hesitate with anything that says somebody is suffering more than somebody else. I think it, it looks really different sometimes. I like this, Carmen. And I think one of the things that you're doing here as a professional is offering these parents the concept again and reiterating it again and letting them know in no uncertain terms this isn't easy. This isn't simple. This is not a very clear black and white situation to deal with. What I'm trying to do is to present the problems that the parents bring forth. How as a parent do I know when to intervene? If it's so ambiguous like this, if it's so, if I've got the gut and I've asked my kids and they say they hate their body and they wish they were the opposite gender and I'm now losing my own thing and I'm still struggling with my work and my relationship and my diet and all this type of stuff. But now I've passed this luggage down to my child in all these different forms. And it's beginning to manifest with this lack of self-concept and this self-loathing that I see. And now my guilt and shame is coming up and I'm supposed to intervene. <laughs> so let me, let me stop here and just also say, parents don't have to figure this out or know all by themselves. Right. So if you have questions around, does my, you know, does my kid need help? You can also call another professional and get their opinion on it. Right. It's, it's we don't have to just kind of struggle all alone. There's tons of resources out there available that that there is to turn towards. Give me a couple that I could go to the Internet place that, that you feel you, you love and trust. You would send a kid there. Mm -hmm. You'd send a parent there for eating disorders in particular. I would use the National Eating Disorders Association. When you decide that you're going to say something to your child about their body issues or their disordered eating. How best do I approach? How do I how do we create a conversation around this? How do I say the right thing? Well, I think we have to be willing to make mistakes also. Right. So the right thing can be complicated. I don't know I don't know that so I think I just want people to feel permission that it's okay to not do this perfectly. But I would invite people to just start with what they actually see. Like here's what I'm noticing and here's what it's making me wonder about. And here's how I feel. And I care very much about you. And, you know, just just those kinds of here's what I notice. Here's what I see. Here's what I feel. I care very much. What do you need? Those kinds of things is maybe what I would I would start with. And then be willing to be wrong. Be willing to be met with defensiveness. Be willing to have somebody say, nope, you're off base. Nope, I'm totally fine. It's still enough that they know that you're noticing. And then keep just keep not with a laser focused kind of eye on them. You don't want you don't want them to feel like they're being policed around food, but just stay aware. Stay aware and stay engaged and continue to let them know that you're there and that you're willing to talk about this whenever they might be willing and able to. If you find that your your teenager is becoming defensive or this conversation is creating the resistance or they shut down into the one word answers, nope. Mm -hmm. Fine. I'm cool. Mm -hmm. What's okay. what's your next bit of advice for a parent? Like, okay, 
Okay, glad to hear that. And if if there is ever you know a time that it feels problematic, I I want you to know that I'm here. Like I wouldn't try to get through the defensiveness. I would just I would say okay, you know I love your cat adding into the conversation right now. <laughs> um, it's great. I miss having cats in my life, so it's happy happy making over here for me. In other words, just understanding that people might get defensive if you're shining the light on something that they don't want anyone else to pay attention to. So not get swayed by that. Not get have some level of maybe expecting some defensiveness as we all do when we're called on something that we don't either we feel shame about or we don't want anyone else to know. Um, and then just continue to offer support if it's if it's needed. And then there may be times that you need to step in more directly, right? Like, hey, here's what I'm really seeing. I think it's time maybe that you go talk to someone or that might be a time that you reach out to another professional in your area and ask for their advice about how to best approach something. You've done so much work with youth and community in the past and with Boulder Youth Body Alliance. And I know right now that you are reinventing your outreach group among kids. Mm -hmm. But uh, Mm -hmm. you even took my daughter, not I want to say twice, I believe my daughter went with you to Washington, D.C. to actually actually speak with our congressmen and women about these issues. Um, Can you tell me a little bit more about that, about what what you were looking to accomplish? Sure. What I was (laughs) looking... So to be honest, um, the first time we went to Washington, I don't know that I was looking to, to accomplish anything other than a fun field trip. With kids, <laughs> right? Um, what it turned into was something very different. So the time there was eating disorder legislation that was introduced to Congress, and we were going in support of the legislation to lobby senators and our congressional representatives to co-sign the bill or co-sponsor the bill. So it was a chance for teenagers to be able to use their voice, to be able to speak to people in positions of authority, people who had power, and to be able to say what was on their mind and what they wanted, and to make direct asks of their representatives. And event, you know, yes, what we wanted was the bill to be passed. That was probably the end goal. But for me, it was more important for them to understand that they had a voice in the political process, that they could call up their representatives and be heard. And they left with that knowing. And to me, that meant that meant everything, that they understood that they have a right to be heard by their representatives and that they could pick up the phone anytime and tell them what was on their mind and be listened to. It was really powerful, I think, for for them, for me, for all of us. And then the other part of that, Aaron, was they got to, there was a other, um, I didn't talk about this so much with them, but this idea of getting engaged in activism was also a pretty preventive tool in terms of eating disorder, eating disorders, disordered eating. It was both a healing tool and a prevention tool. So this idea that I can take action around the things in my life making me feel badly about myself, I can do something to change the conditions that lead to that being true was also really powerful for them. I remember I was in Barcelona and my son was being dropped off at school and I was sitting in a square and a demonstration, you know, hundreds and hundreds of of people, probably between the age of 16 and 26. It was a youth march and they were, I don't remember protesting what they were protesting or anything, but there's a lot of demonstrations in Barcelona and they really provide for that and make space for that. Uh Uh And so I was sitting in the square and I watched all the people come by and they were very peacefully demonstrating. They had signs. I don't understand Spanish, so I don't know what they were saying. But when it was done and they were all moved on and the police who were blocking off traffic for them and everybody had moved on, I noticed that on all the bus stops where there were pictures of this very too skinny female model modeling clothes or cars or cigarettes or God knows what 
they were actually trying to sell. But on the pictures of them on the bus stop, someone had taken a big black magic marker and wrote the word fake on every single Mm. one. Don't believe, fake, Mm. lies. Mm. The inundation that we're up against as parents, as children, it's constant. There is no relief from it. How do you compete? Mm -hmm. How do you say to your child, not that this? When it's mm-hmm. so constant, it's in their music, it's in their cartoons. How it's do you everywhere? Do, yeah. How do you do? Yeah. How do you compete? Yeah. Um, I think it's sitting down and developing some kind of critical thinking skills with our young people, right? Like, so taking a look at the messages we're getting and asking questions like, "Who's benefiting from? Who's benefiting from this? Right? Who's benefiting from me feeling like my body is wrong?" or that I need to lose weight, or that I need to be more fit, or whatever it is. Who benefits from that? In other words, who's making money off my insecurity? And that, I tell you what, that gets kids pissed off. It gets me angry, frankly. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. I don't want anyone getting making money off of me. You know, it's like they made me feel insecure, and then they're going to make money off of selling me the solution to that insecurity. Like, screw that. No way. <laughs> <laughs> I'm reclaiming, right, my right to be in my body as, as it is, and I'm not giving anyone else. I'm not letting anyone else making money off of how I feel about myself. Like, it's just, it, it's kind of like a, re, you know, it's uh, it's resistance. It's media literacy, although that's, you know, a little fatiguing for young people now. But it's really critical thinking and looking at how is it that the system is set up that some bodies are privileged and some bodies are discriminated against, right? And who's, how does that system work? How does that system operate? And so it's also teaching about oppression, frankly, and how, because when we're talking about bodies and who gets access to rights and resources and privilege, we're talking about all kinds of aspects of bodies, right? So then, then I kind of bring in social justice, which kids like to talk about in my experience, and looking at systems of oppression and how that impacts how we feel about our bodies and how do we how do we kind of break out of that? What can we do around that? How do we say, hey, this isn't this isn't a system I want to buy into for myself? Is my making sense? Does that make sense? Most definitely. Most definitely. Wow, Carmen, there's a, there's a lot here, and I want to. It's massive, and I and I really. You said it at the beginning, and I really want to reiterate it for everybody. This is not a person problem. It's a cultural problem. It it is the cultural norm to be on a diet, and I think for the first time in a long, long time, I have finally let it go. Mm-hmm. And and it feels good. And I very much recognize when the idea of letting it go might mean that I don't have a six pack. I've never had a six pack. I don't know why I think it's going to happen now that I'm almost 50. But there's I'm still struggling with the idea that I'm okay letting it go. Like, does yeah. that make sense? And that's... yeah. That's that's not easy. So so there's that. There's there's this cultural overwhelm that families are up against. Number two, there's the fact that your teenager is locked in a little private hell of image and being alone, and that to receive something you have to present one thing, and none of us fit that one thing. Right. Not one of us. And I hearken back to a picture I saw on the internet many years ago, and it had this a very buxom blonde in a very tiny bikini strutting down the beach with her hair blowing in the beach wind. And for all intent and purpose, according to culture, she had the perfect 10 look. But the caption underneath said, somewhere, somebody is sick of her shit. And <laughs> it cracked me up in reminding me that none of us are going to fit this mold. The mold isn't real. It's 
and and we have to address it with the kids. We have to address it with these children who are struggling with it. But the only way that we are going to present anything worthy to the kids about this is if we address it in ourselves. And you're asking parents to be very conscious with their own eating habits and feelings around their body and what's going on in their body when they're dealing with food. Because we're asking parents to ask kids about those things. And that's a that's a tough conversation. And you're right in giving them permission to screw it up. They're going to. I'm going to. You're going to. We're humans. And even as professionals who've been trained and and all the training you've gone through and all the self-teaching you've done so that you can pass these lessons on and all the years and years that I've done this, we're we're still going to do it wrong because every person is an individual. So so there's a lot to do this. And it makes me want to have another conversation with you, taking this to a deeper level on a future date. Is that something you'd be interested in? I'd love to, Aaron. I love talking about this. Good. Well, thank you. And so, ladies and gentlemen, this is Carmen Cool. She has a private practice. Where are you located now, Carmen? I'm in Boulder, Colorado. Okay. And you said you're teaching. Where are you teaching? I'm developing some online courses, mostly right now for other professionals to kind of learn how to work with disordered eating, but also learn how to eliminate the impact of weight stigma in their work. So how to recognize weight stigma, how their weight biases might impact how they're working with people with disordered eating. It's kind of the other um, the other thing that I'm super interested in and, and wanting to develop. You said you're reinventing the Boulder Youth Body Alliance, your youth outreach program. Please, when you do have that finalized and ready to launch, please, please, please let me know so that I can I promise. promote you like crazy. Your work yeah. is incredible. And ladies and gentlemen, if you Thank have you. if you have a question for Carmen, please go to CarmenCool.com to look at her website, look at her trainings, ask her directly. Carmen, thank you so much. This is a, a sensitive subject for me. My daughter has embraced herself at a level that I am incredibly envious of. And I absolutely Mm. credit you for for intervening Mm. on her life and in her mind at the right place. And you really did open her heart to herself beautifully. So I thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that. Oh, it's an honor. And she has impacted my life equally. That is for sure. So thank you so much for those words. It's my pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been Beyond Risk and Back, eating me from the inside, my conversation with Carmen Cool. As always, parents, clinicians, and teachers, remember, take care of yourself first, take care of your adult relationships second, and take care of the children third. In that way, we do our best work for the children. This is Aaron Hueys, and I want to thank all my peeps over at Mental Health News Radio. Please go to mentalhealthnewsradio.com and look at all of our podcasts, and we will talk again soon. Thank you for joining us at Beyond Risk and Back. Support for parents, clinicians, and teachers. Join us at beyondriskandback.com. You can download past episodes there. Visit Fire Mountain Residential Treatment Center's website for information, support, and continuing education trainings for parents and professionals at www.firemountainprograms.com. You can also connect with me directly on Facebook by searching at Beyond Risk and Back. You can also follow me on Twitter, catch me on YouTube, and join me here every week for another podcast. This is Aaron Huey saying, remember, take care of yourself first, your adult relationships second, and your children third, because in that way, we do our best work for the children. Thank you for listening, and we will talk again soon.